Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. For the most part, uh, you know, American interest in Australia, just like Australian interest in America, is, you know, it's politically agnostic. Australians will work with any flavor of American administration to a point, and the same is true uh, in reverse. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm David Andrews. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Today I'm joined by Dr. Charles Edel, Senior Advisor and Inaugural Australia Chair at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies, for a discussion on the Australia-United States relationship and a view from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Charlie. David, thanks very much for having me on. I thought this is a really fantastic opportunity, Charlie, given your background both now as the Australia Chair at CSIS and previously having spent a number of years working at the United States Studies Centre in Sydney. Uh, you've obviously got a great understanding of the Australia-US dynamic and time in both countries. I thought it'd be uh, a really useful opportunity for us to reflect on the state of the Australia-US relationship and perhaps some of the uh, historical factors at play there as well. So I thought maybe to, to help set the scene for us, uh, an interesting place to start would be to look at uh, the degree of mutual understanding between our countries. And obviously, we're big consumers of US politics, of media and culture in Australia as well. Um, we're allies. Uh, and I think there's fair to say a, a, a strong level of maybe kinship and mutual affection between our countries. But at the same time, uh, I, I imagine there's a lot that Australians get wrong about the US and maybe don't understand as fully as they might, that there's uh, there's the focus on on maybe not surface level, but on high level aspects of the relationship. So um, do we actually, do our two countries understand each other as well as, as we think we do? Uh, we understand each other well. Uh, we have a lot of affection, uh, sometimes a touching amount of affectionate disdain for each other as well. Uh, but no, the, of course, there are uh, you know some uh, some misperceptions. I think on both sides of the Pacific, uh, you know, when Australians look at Americans, I would say that in general there are maybe two or three things that are likely to throw them uh, to kind of uh, you know because it, we naturally think of each other as just so similar, uh, but there are some differences, and some of them are cultural. Others are political, uh, but that have effect, I think, on our understanding and, in fact, on the alliance. So uh, it's a great question, David. Let me throw out uh, three uh, that I thought of as you were asking it. Um, so the first is, I, I think, fundamentally, uh, are the difference in our political systems. A parliamentary system is different than a presidential system. Uh, the way that governance works, 
Uh, the way that government can pronounce and put a budget at things is different. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, Rory and I were talking about just the other week when he came on for an event that we did at CSIS was the potential utility of a national security strategy in Australia, right? Doesn't have one as opposed to the US. Well, one of the advantages could be that if a government were to issue something like that here in Canberra, a government has the ability to put its budget at it. In the US, it's quite different. Uh, because the administration can shape what it wants to do, can set objectives by law, is mandated to have a national security, but then has to work with the Congress, oftentimes an oppositional Congress, in order to get a budget. So objectives and resources are not as closely linked as they are. Um, a second one, uh, and now I think I'll span out a little bit uh, and move away maybe just from uh, politics and governance, is uh, in Australia, I think the uh, – Fairness vibe is really high, uh, both historically uh, but culturally. Don't like people putting on airs. Uh, there's something uh, occasionally of a tall poppy syndrome uh, that occurs here as well. Uh, in America, I, I think the the freedom part is privileged over the fairness part uh, a lot of times. So the tall poppy syndrome doesn't really factor in as much into our politics or into our culture. Uh, we really like strivers even if we roll our eyes occasionally at them. But that's a big difference uh, I think too. I'll give you one more uh, in addition to this. Uh, I was lucky enough uh, to work with my uh, good friend and sometimes colleague uh, John Lee when I was at the U.S. Study Center. and We wrote a big report um, in 2019 about the future of U.S.-Australian uh, cooperation. And what we set out to do in the report was describe some of the differences uh, of approaches that both Australia and America have to the execution, even the conception of foreign policy. And I think a big one is because America is big, uh, because it had a long time to throw its weight around for good and for ill, uh, the world, uh, America is I think more used to uh, copping flack and getting critique and criticism. That doesn't mean that we can't get better at adjusting to it, but America decides what it's going to do and moves, whereas I think oftentimes in Australian political culture, it wants as much consensus as possible, um, uh, both internally but also regionally. And I think America knows that it wants to work with allies and partners, but is maybe uh, a little bit more willing to cop flack because of its size and bulk. Well, perhaps to turn the question around the other way as well. Are there things that you've observed or that you think perhaps America doesn't understand about Australia? Yeah, uh, there are tons of it, uh, tons of things. Um, you know, when we were launching the Australia chair, uh, John Hamry, uh, the president of CSIS, uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, operator, person, understander of all things Washington, said, you know, most Americans love Australia, but they have a really poor conception of it. Uh, you know, you think about your mental image, it's really a pretty outdated image. Like Crocodile Dundee is not really the Australia of 2023. It's hardly the Australia of 2020 or, 20, or 2000 for that matter. Uh, so it is a place that's a long way away. But I think that understanding, uh, first of all, the fact that Australia is a highly urbanized uh, culture, um, understanding just how wealthy uh, Australia is. And understanding just how integrated into Asia it has become over the past 20 years uh, are things that Americans don't always understand. 
The other thing from a strategic cultural perspective, David, is you know we were lucky enough to spend a couple of years living here. And yes, you pay attention to the Pacific, uh, but when you live here in the Pacific, it's front of mind. And making sure that that uh, matters to how Australia thinks geographically and therefore strategically uh, matters more here than I think it does in the U.S. So those are some of the differences I would point out probably uh, between the not only two nations but also how Americans uh, perceive Australia. Let me add one more uh, because as we're talking, I think a a couple more are leaping to mind. Um, Australia is a great ally of the United States. But Americans don't always understand the the pulls and the pressures on Australia. Um, And so the fact that uh, Australia really has done a lot to diversify its trade, but the fact that Australia is so trade dependent on a single market, China, uh, when you begin to throw out the figure of just how trade dependent it is, that often surprises uh, many Americans too. Well, it won't shock you that I'd be interested to talk a little bit more about the alliance. I mean, it's a... a quite central aspect of the bilateral relationship. And I mean, this might seem an odd question given the ones I've just asked, but uh, thinking in the context of of that relationship of Australia's great and powerful friend in the United States, does it actually matter whether there is that level of understanding between the parties or is it, or can the, the alliance relationship function on the basis of a set of expectations or parameters around, say, the, the more defence strategic relationship, and can the political and the social aspects can they still remain disparate, but but the alliance still function effectively? Uh, so the short answer is yes, uh, they can uh, exist. Uh, we can uh, continue as good uh, treaty allies, defence uh, cooperation between us. But there are hard stops to just how much you're willing to do if it remains in that realm. Uh, so again, I think that while there are kind of misunderstandings uh, between us and maybe not a full understanding of the other partner, we have a pretty good understanding and in general, more or less, uh, the same values kind of pervade and predominate both societies too, even if we lean different ways slightly. But it's a really good question, David, because without a basis that goes beyond defense – there are hard limitations to just how much you're willing to trust each other and just how much you're willing to do more and kind of expand the bounds of what it is possible. So I find really interesting, I have to say, that uh, in uh, Hiroshima at the G7, uh, the bilateral meeting that occurred there and not here in Canberra, uh, we could talk about that too if you want. But one of the really interesting things is the fulfillment, I think, of what Prime Minister Albanese had said during the campaign that he really wanted to make climate action into a third pillar of the alliance. In addition to trade and commerce, in addition to defense, climate action really needs to be a third pillar, both because it's vitally important for both of our countries and for the future of the world. It's a natural area of synergy between these two particular administrations that we have. But also when we begin to think about the future of the alliance in the 21st century, It needs to expand and change both to address the challenges of the 21st century but also make sure that it's appealing to the concerns and demands of a younger demographic that does not have the historical memory and ties that the older one might. And so making sure that it can expand along tracks like climate action is really important I think for growing what is actually possible between our two countries. Well, why don't we stick with that 
this new compact that you right. just mentioned uh, sort of while we're there for the time being. So it's the uh, fully entitled Climate, Critical Minerals and Clean Energy Transformation Compact, which is a bit of a mouthful. but yeah, It doesn't really, really roll off the tongue, Not does so it? much. <laughs> but as you say, it, it's been sort of dubbed this third pillar or new pillar of the alliance. Um, and I wonder how much... Uh, I think this is a question that people ask perhaps more broadly around sort of the Biden foreign policy and uh, the extent to which it will be continued in, in future administrations. But uh, the alliance is historic and it's it's political and diplomatic. But if we, I guess, focus on the political aspects, mm. uh, how much would would the good work of an initiative like this compact, can it be bedded down into the system in the next couple of years in the United States uh, not, not that we're assuming that there's going to be a change of government, but you know, there's, there's the potential that there might be. And my impression is that a lot of the uh, Republican candidates may not be quite so excited about the idea of a climate and clean energy compact, unless perhaps it's framed as some way of fighting China, almost sort of getting them out of the critical mineral space. If, you, if it was recast in those terms, perhaps they'd be on board, but that seems antithetical to the substantive intent. Um. So I think you're on to something, David, but we can say that it's not just China that I think will drive this potentially. And then we can talk about uh, you know, uh, what we see as the likelihood of this continuing. But I, I think it's there is clearly a China angle here, whether or not we're saying this. There are a lot of C's in what you read off, uh, the climate, uh, critical minerals, the compact, uh, but China is absent from this. But of course, what we're talking about is not only the ability of uh, our energy consumption to become greener, to help the planet survive, uh, to become better partners to those in the Pacific, but also make sure that countries around the region and indeed globally are not as vulnerable to the potential of economic coercion uh, from China. If we think about where the critical minerals are processed in the world, right, we know that they exist all over the place, but ninety upwards of 90% of processing of critical minerals, of course, comes from China. If we think about not only Australia's experience kind of being met out with uh, economic coercion, but Japan's going back to 2010, you know, China has the ability to turn off the taps when they are politically disappointed or angry with a country. So there's no doubt that China will help drive this, I think. Two, uh, another thing that will help drive this is the ex explosion of uh, demand for cleaner energy uh, around the world, but particularly in this region. But a third one, and this begins to, I think, get to your point, David, about where will Republicans sit on this is – the more this becomes a profitable enterprise, the more attractive this is. Uh, kind of, you know, strip away all uh, the ideological language around this, but uh, energy, uh, clean energy that creates new industries, creates new jobs, uh, that is profitable for businesses is something that is inherently attractive. And that's why I think you're seeing a shift in some of the climate uh, debates and talking points even within the United States on this too because we're looking at the extraordinary amount of uh, processing of mining that will occur either in the U.S. or frankly overseas and then come into the U.S. economy. So look, that's a very long-winded intro, David, uh, for saying that uh, you know different flavors of administration will be warmer or colder on particular initiatives. I think this one is potentially uh, potentially a little bit more sticky depending, as you said, on how quickly we can move from statements like the compact 
to actual institutionalization uh, and then actual profitability of the private sector on this particular initiative within both of our countries. Uh, so at the time of recording, which is so uh, we're here in, uh, in in June of 2023, uh, you've just had a piece released, I think, yesterday in the Australian Financial Review that's addressing sort of the potential for, for the compact and what can be done. Um, and one aspect that I'd like to, to pick out is uh, the extent to which this new arrangement can provide assistance beyond our bilateral relationships, so into states of Southeast Asia and the Pacific and beyond. Um, so where do you see the benefits outside of Australia and the US um, if we can really get this compact sort of up and running at, at a good level? Yeah, no, the piece that came out uh, in the um, Financial Review yesterday, which I co-authored with uh, Jim Caruso, Jim, who used to be uh, our acting ambassador here, now uh, works with me at CSIS uh, as chairman of our advisory council. Uh, look, the, the point was that there's obviously a growing demand for energy and clean energy, but there's also a obvious strategic interest for both the United States and Australia to work more closely with Southeast Asia to provide them with more optionality, right? Hence the quad. Uh, that's what it is. But particularly now, as we kind of narrow down the focus on to climate, onto critical minerals, uh, one of the things that we called for in this initiative uh, was the way that you can actually progress this compact is there's so much uh, material um, around Southeast Asia, uh, cobalt, nickel, iron, right, that actually can potentially be brought into Australia under the various uh, multilateral trading agreements that Australia has that then can be improved upon or moved up the value chain once there is investment on that and can then be imported to the U.S. under the bilateral FTA that Australia and the United States has, that if you actually do a little bit of mapping about all these trade agreements, which qualifies for this, and then therefore, which potential benefits Australian companies would get as a domestic supplier, which President Biden has said that he is going to ask for Australia to be included as, uh, this has the potential not only of boosting investment into Australia for clean energy, but really helping to give optionality for the nations of Southeast uh, Asia, which is exactly the strategic intent behind much of our work there. I think that's maybe a useful opportunity thinking about Southeast Asia and optionality uh, to talk a little bit about the Quad um, and some other regional institutions there. So as you mentioned earlier, uh, there was the um, the planned Quad Leaders Summit that was meant to be in Sydney that unfortunately had to be uh, postponed or cancelled on account of uh, some debt ceiling negotiations back in DC. And um, I think there was a bit of a, a flurry of, of media reporting here in Canberra at the time uh, about the extent to which this marked a particular – it's not so much a matter of downgrading, but sort of a prioritization of relationship and things like that, which I think was – was a bit overblown, frankly, and we don't need to necessarily dwell on that. But you mentioned about institutionalization before. It is as as the quad grows and it takes on new shape, um, we're now having these regular leaders summits. We're having ministerial meetings. We're talking around the possibility of quad plus things like that. Um, I suppose what, what's your sense on maybe what's next for the quad? Is it taking on more of these these compact like? approaches and, and broadening its scope even further? Is it more important for it to maybe deepen its current 
foundations rather than keeping on spreading further? I'd just be interested in your sort of reflections on how the quad's tracking. Yeah, I mean, let's let's start at the top of the question. There's no doubt that this is a grave disappointment uh, that the quad leaders meeting didn't occur here, that the bilateral meeting did not occur here, that President Biden wasn't in Canberra and addressing uh, the parliament. I think everyone in the world feels disappointed by this, particularly so the president. Uh, if you looked at his remarks with uh, the prime minister, uh, I think he expressed that about as well as he could. Look, every uh, this is, uh, I guess, excuse making, but the excuse is an important one. Uh, every country has domestic politics. Um, we can't really afford a default on our national debt, and frankly, neither can the world. Uh, the timing is really unfortunate, uh, but such is as it is. Uh, you know, again, before I get to the quad portion of this question, David, uh, I got asked. We were doing kind of a you know some uh, uh, taking some questions from the press in advance of the G seven and the stop in Papua New Guinea and the quad, right? Uh, only one of which uh, of those three actually happened. Uh, and someone said this is about a week uh, before the cancellation. Well, what happens if the president cancels? And I said, well, there's no way he's going to cancel. Obviously wrong on that one. Uh, but it's not just the president, right? It was the Congress uh, that had a big role in that too. Uh, but what I said was it would be you know, a missed opportunity. There would be a great uh, moment to talk about climate in Canberra. A great photo op at the Sydney Opera House, a ton of work that went into this. But let's also note that the very, very hardworking uh, bureaucrats and uh, you know political officers um, and policymakers had bedded down exactly what they were going to announce you know, by that point. So it's not like these things would not happen. You just wouldn't get the photo op. And in fact, the very truncated meetings – of the president, uh, uh, you know, both in a bilat uh, with Prime Minister Albanese, uh, but also kind of on the quad, right? I mean, truncated, shrunk down to like an hour or a half an hour up in Hiroshima. They basically released all the things that they were going to release there. So unfortunate, uh, not the best. Uh, we haven't had a presidential visit to Australia for a long time, uh, nearly a decade at this point. Um, but I will say that if there is a silver lining here, um, when we think about kind of big moments on the calendar where countries actually can uh, make commitments to each other and roll out real deliverables, the, you, know, you don't get too many bites at the apple. And this year alone, I now count three for the alliance and that is way more than almost any other country in the world, right? So we had the uh, truncated, the missed opportunity that we were just talking about. But we did have the quad leaders meeting. We did have a bilat, and we had a bunch of real announcements and deliverables. We know that the Osman um, uh, is going to happen probably in July. So that's another moment for this. And uh, because uh, for the delayed or rescheduled or who knows when it will ever happen a trip to Australia, one of the things that came out of that is the invitation by President Biden to Prime Minister Albanese to have a state visit in Washington uh, in November. Uh, those are very rare. Uh, we'll see what actually ends up materializing, whether or not Prime Minister Albanese will address the Congress. Uh, but that's a really big moment too. So again, not the best. Uh, I don't want to put too much uh, lipstick on the pig here. Uh, but this actually presents uh, an opportunity that I think is a really good one for both countries. Uh, again, sorry, I went on a tangent there. You were asking about the quad and what actually might happen next. Um, uh, look, there are a ton 
of work streams uh, within the quad now. It really has uh, been institutionalized to a degree that I think people didn't really uh, perceive as possible. The dynamics between the leaders, even with several changes of leaders, uh, continues to be uh, quite good. But I think that what we're hearing uh, from uh, the folks who are running this is we now actually need to make sure that uh, all the working groups continue to deliver results beyond pronouncements. I think one of the more interesting things that flowed out of this uh, round of quad leaders meetings is the fact that the private sector is now uh, being drawn in more. There's now a quad investors uh, network, which is great uh, because our political systems are very good, are very powerful. But until you get the kind of the market share of big liberal market uh, economies, it won't deliver as much as the promise. So I think that's something where I'd really like to see the focus go towards next. And I think kind of delivering on what they have before they hit, you know, as they say, peak quad, quad in space uh, is probably a more fruitful line. I think I absolutely agree. And the one of the, the common critiques or sort of perhaps encouragements for the quad to do better <laughs> that I've heard around is this aspect of delivery and that we we have lots of announcements that I understand obviously they have to keep up with the way in which the global situation mm. is evolving so it, it can't just stand still and do one or two things and leave it at that but at the same time there's the challenge around delivery and and without something to show for it and almost show for it publicly not yep. just the behind the scenes it sort of undermines perhaps the broader efficacy or, or credibility beyond our four countries so I think that's I'm I'm absolutely with you there and that's something that actually here at the National Security College, uh, we have a project in its third iteration that we're doing now called the Quad Tech Network, which will have a um, some some research papers to be published from that as yep. the year goes on. So it's something that that we're alive to as well. So trying to build build on that, but um, really, I think this it, it takes us back to that first question as well around what Australians perhaps need to understand better about the US, as you mentioned. That of course we all have our domestic political circumstances and the the nature of debt ceiling negotiations and the president's role and the congress and senate's role as well is something that um maybe we need to understand a little bit better so when inevitably these kind of uh, events occur uh, the, the ship isn't rocked so much in the australian domestic sense um but uh one aspect that i'd like to uh perhaps have some he your thoughts on is whether there is a a sense, and I don't have anything in mind when I say this, but whether there's any sense in DC and in the US about changes in policy between, say, the Morrison government and now the Albanese government, whether there have been any major uh, sort of shifts in policy. We often talk about in Australia that there's a bit of a recent um, tradition of sorts, which is towards a bipartisan foreign policy. Um, and perhaps there are some areas where that's pulling in different directions at the moment, uh, for good or for ill, but I'm not sure how, to what extent that is seen overseas or whether that's merely something that we um, we apply. So has there been a perception of any noticeable changes between the governments or is it much as it was? Well, look, uh, you know, for the most part, uh, and I do really mean for the most part, uh, you know, American interest in Australia, just like Australian interest in America is, you know, it's politically agnostic, all right? It's kind of favored in, you know, in the direction of the alliance and of kind of strengthening and deepening this. But you know, Australians will work with any flavor of American administration to a point, and the same is true uh, in reverse. 
So in the lead up to the election last year, I think there were a lot of questions. Uh, I don't say concerns. I just say questions about what direction uh, a labor government would take. Uh, you know, there had been a lot of promises, as we know from the Morrison government, uh, a real a reshaping um, of uh, the direction of defense policy that we first saw under the, the defense strategic update in 2020. Uh, we had already had the commitment to AUKUS. And I think there were questions about uh, to what degree these would be countenanced, uh, which uh, to what degree some of these might be distanced uh, by the new government. And so I think that the continuity uh, that Washington has seen in support for the alliance, in support for the Quad, in support for AUKUS, uh, in support for defense posture initiatives that we've seen at the last several Osmonds have all been uh, you know, very welcome in Washington. Uh, you know, watching very closely your election, uh, you know, as we said, um, and when we listened to, uh, you know, then opposition leader Albanese, uh, then shadow minister uh, Wong, uh, right, what, what were the lines that they would use on defense and national security? They said, we, we have no differences with the government other than stylistically. And that was not entirely true, right? I mean, there were some real differences, obviously, on climate. Uh, as Solomon Islands kind of burst into uh, the campaign and became a real issue, uh, there was some finger pointing uh, about not being sufficiently engaged uh, in the Pacific. Um, and as we know, the critique at least uh, was that there have been many promises made on the defense, particularly procurement, uh, but there hadn't been a lot of deliveries. Uh, and so if we now – so there actually were some real differences I think between the two parties, even if the general – bipartisan nature held. Uh, the fact that the new government over the past year has moved out very quickly on the Pacific, uh, I can't get anywhere close to DFAT without being quoted how many uh, trips Penny Wong has made across the Pacific. It's really impressive. If we think about kind of the new initiatives on climate and green energy and critical minerals, if we think about um, the push with the defense strategic review to prioritize delivery of capabilities and quickly and bring AUKUS off, uh, I, I think all of those haven't assuaged Washington. It's not for Washington to be assuaged, but I think have been music uh, to the administration's ears and are things that they can work with quite well. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. Perhaps as a related question, um, recently at uh, CSIS, as the Australia Chair, you had a, a conversation with Australia's new 
ambassador to the United States, uh, Kevin Rudd, who mm-hmm. obviously um, has a has a tremendous history of uh, you know, at, both as a prime minister and foreign minister and at uh, the Asia Society and all sorts of things. He has he's tremendous in a well known sense. I'm not necessarily making a, a partisan remark. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll preface that with saying, um, but um, probably the most high profile ambassador we've had almost. Ever. To, to any country. Ever. ever. I think you can say that. Yeah. Uh, and how how's he been received? I mean, I think there were some uh, concerns that maybe he would be a bit too independent um, and that that would be a difficult relationship, maybe more for the foreign minister to manage than the prime minister. Uh, but we often talk about in Australia that the benefit of having a relatively small number of political appointees as as ambassadors and high mm. commissioners and often in the largest and most significant partner countries um, with the US being being one of those um so is has he i, I imagine taken it to fish to water it's sort of just moving moving up or down the highway from New York, I guess. Has it been a big change? Uh, well, uh, I, I think he has taken like a fish to water. I, I mean, he's been received very well. You know, your question, David, and I think you answered it already about whether or not he's too independent. That's a more of a concern, I think, potentially for Canberra than it is for Washington. Although uh, in the interview uh, that we um, had with him last week at, at CSIS, which was kind of his first big public comments, um you know, listen very carefully. I don't think there was any deviation from where the government was on any of the points that I, you know, pushed him on. Uh, so that part I don't think is there. But look, he has a tremendous intellect and a tremendous amount of energy. Both of those are welcome because they really energize not only your embassy but the alliance as well. Uh, you know, I was chatting with a uh, um, a journalist just before um, Rudd uh, took uh, the reins. Uh, and I was asked, well, you know, what do you think about what is Washington thinking about Rudd? And I said, look, what does any country think about appointing an ambassador? They want, I think, three things. Uh, they want someone who know the players well. They know someone who know the issues well. And probably more important than either of the two things, they want someone who has the ability to reach back into their own decision-making process, into cabinet. You know, all three of those Rudd has in spades. And for that reason, he's a really welcome addition uh, to the conversation. He has also, I think, uh, you know, really worked hard. I am watching him kind of work with members of the U.S. Congress, right? Again, one of our differences too, that the president can say that he wants to do, or she, we haven't had a she yet, anything they want, but oftentimes Congress has a real role. That's true on a lot of things. It happens to be true about AUKUS as well. And so the energy is being directed not only at the administration but towards Congress as well and towards individual members and committees. Uh, I actually think that's paying some real useful dividends potentially as well. Well, as you mentioned, AUKUS, uh, again, sort of as recently when we're having this conversation, there's a report that's come out from the U.S. Uh, Government Accountability Office, mm-hmm. the the sort of auditors, uh, particularly focused on the Virginia class submarine uh, construction process, and that, if I recall correctly, that they've noted there's now an additional two year delay on the Block Five uh, Virginia class submarines, and um, Australia is nominally getting purchasing, having transferred, I think it's two or three Virginia class submarines as the first tranche of the AUKUS process. Uh, 
is that delay also noting the speed at which China is trying to build more submarines and that that the US is trying to um, level up its own submarine force, is there a sense in which that delay in construction might affect or perhaps endanger the the plan for AUKUS as it currently stands? Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, we don't have to beat around the bush uh, on that. But you've actually like thrown out three or four different things that are all worth unpacking and all worth talking about. So first of all, that GAO report that talked about the Block 5s said there is a delay in the construction of the new Block 5 SSNs, the Virginia uh, Tech class submarines, due to ongoing labor shortages that we have requirements uh, for the U.S. Department of Defense about how many ships they have to build. Uh, and we build not only attack submarines, but we uh, also build SSBNs, right? Boomers, our nuclear attack um, uh, submarines. That takes more manpower. And so a lot of the actual skilled labor that we need has been pulled off of the Virginia class and thrown towards the Columbia class, the SSBNs. So look, that's a, that's a, a partial answer to your question. But – when the leaders got together in San Diego to roll out the optimal pathway forward for AUKUS on March 13th, um, and when the leader statement came out, uh, you know, there are three words that jumped out uh, from me, uh, particularly on stage uh, three of AUKUS. Uh, for those of your listeners who aren't, you know, kind of well across all the details, AUKUS is really complex. Even, you know, pillar one, which is the, um, you know, nuclear-powered uh, submarines, is a highly complex endeavor because it comes in multiple stages. Stage one, the increasing visibility of American and maybe British submarines to Australia starting as early as this year. Stage two, the the creation of a rotational force west out of Western Australia that will have up to four US SSNs and one British one starting in two years' time. Stage three, here's where we get to get we begin to get to the critical stage. Um, the sale to Australia of somewhere between three to five U.S. Virginia um, uh, Virginia class uh, submarines, and then stage four, kind of as we approach the late 2030s, early 2040s, the creation of SSN AUKUS, uh, first in the UK, then uh, here in Australia. But kind of narrowing down on that three one, uh, the sale of U.S. Uh, submarines to Australia says pending congressional approval. Uh, now, uh, Americans love Australia. I think we started talking about that. Uh, but we also have our own defense requirements and we also have to be able to take care of and make sure that our resources are matched against our objectives, which are global as our American interests. So the pending congressional approval means we need Congress on board. In fact, there's legislation that has just been moved because to actually sell a boat that is in use, not something that's going to be made in the future, you need Congress to say, you know what, we're okay to take it out of our uh, you know, arsenal and transfer it uh, to someone else, uh, Australia in this case. So that's kind of where we're at right now. Congress is thinking about this. Uh, it's not a slam dunk, as we say, because we have to think very carefully about how the U.S. meets its own requirements, particularly when it's not producing as many as it needs. Now, again, for those who are really wonky, they're already kind of tracking and covering this stuff. But in U.S. requirements for what it is that we're supposed to produce, we're supposed to be producing two new Virginia-class uh, submarines per year and one new 
Columbia class submarine per year because of a range of different factors, uh, including COVID, including shortages in the workforce, uh, including a longstanding delay in funding our submarine industrial base. That's shifted, but it hadn't for a long time. Instead of producing two, we're somewhere at 1.2 to 1.4 per year. Now, there are a lot of things that are going to happen with AUKUS, including growing the submarine industrial base in the U.S. first and then followed by both the U.K. and Australia. But that pending congressional approval is really important because one of the issues that strikes me as a very legitimate issue of debate uh, and conversation amongst our legislators and our general public as well is this will require – AUKUS will require a short-term hit to American readiness. With the idea that an investment in Australia grows in aggregate what all three partners can produce in the medium and long term. Now, making sure that that's a good bet in the long term also means addressing what that means in the short term as well. Well, I'll just put my last question to you now, Charlie, based which I think continues uh, perhaps from the the AUKUS theme, um, which is how much room is there for disagreement? on uh, major issues of policy and strategy within the framework of the alliance, particularly over matters of, of war and conflict. Because I think there's often even like within Australia, people talking about the alliance impose a certain top-down control model that says that that the US says jump and Australia says how high and we just continue in that vein, which I think the history would show that there's a lot more complexity to that and in many of the large instances where it's actually been bottom-up, and Australia's been sort of pursuing its own uh, strategic interests and choices. And I think AUKUS is maybe a great example of that, is that this wasn't something that was thought up in Washington or in Honolulu. It was thought up in Canberra and then worked through London, then then to the US. So there's obviously some scope for that. But then we start talking about things like possible Taiwan scenarios, which mm. are obviously very contentious and topical and, and everyone's very interested. And the nub of the question is that despite these um, both instances of top-down and, um, and and bottom-up uh, sort of leadership within the alliance, really at the end of the day, how much room is there for um, for Australia to say no or to, to opt out of a particular uh, sort of conflict scenario? Yeah, uh, lots. Um uh, but uh, I would also add, uh, you know, Australia is a sovereign nation. America completely understands that. Um, America is a sovereign nation. Australia completely understands that. But, uh, you know, I think in many ways our, you know, our strength is the fact that we are not carbon copies of each other, that we can do things slightly differently and with different partners. That is a strength. Um but you know, when we do drill down on particular topics, let me say that small differences uh, don't matter uh, that much. I, I make eminent sense. Large strategic divergences become more challenging. Uh, that, that's not a shocking thing to say. Uh, I don't see many of them right now. Uh, I, I will say, you know, on perhaps the most contentious issue that we're talking about, about Taiwan. Uh, you know, there is a very loud, very vibrant debate in America about what America should be doing to help Taiwan defend itself at this point. Uh, that debate is much less developed here in Australia. 
Uh, it is a topic of conversation between our two governments. Uh, I don't think this is a quid pro quo that you will do what we want on Taiwan uh, or you won't get the uh, submarines, even though some very senior uh, policymakers on the Australian side have alleged that there is a quid pro quo in there. I don't think that's true uh, at all, and neither does your prime minister for that matter. Um, but on these uh, really important issues, when push comes to shove, uh, I think it's you know, again, I can pretend that I'm a politician and say we don't talk in abstractions, we don't talk in theoreticals, but the conversations become harder. One of the reasons why I think we have you know such a strong alliance is because uh, we trust each other an enormous amount and therefore can tell each other, no, not quite right, we're doing it this way. But inevitably, there is friction around some of these areas. In fact, uh, you know, we started the conversation, David by talking about some of the differences, how Americans perceive uh, Australians. Uh, you know, to me, over the last couple of years, the two things that really strike me uh, are that, uh, first of all, we're undergoing something of a role reversal here. Uh, for a long time, Australian and American governments, military certainly, had no trouble cooperating the further away we were from Asia. Uh, and we would, uh, us Americans, uh, consistently say, hey, South China Sea, big problem, uh, you know, Asia, growing challenge with uh, China, and uh, we would get a yes, but you're hyperventilating uh, response from uh, Canberra. Uh, and so we would constantly, I think, be uh, dogging Australian friends, what more can you do in the region? Um, now, I think we're undergoing a bit of a role reversal, right? Uh, we're Australians having decided that this is such a challenge in front of them want to see ever more U.S. commitment, particularly in the trade and economic space, but in other areas too from America. Uh, I actually think that's a very healthy dynamic where we're now expecting more of each other. But the other thing is, as our alliance grows even closer, as we're making bigger demands of each other, as we're making bigger demands about some of the most important things that we possess on technology, on secrets, on innovation – there's no doubt that the friction between our two governments will be rising too because we are demanding more things of each other. Now, hopefully, friction can be productive and useful, although there's no doubt that when you're disagreeing about things, you know, there's some raw feelings every now and then too. But to me, that's the sign of a maturing relationship where we don't sweep our differences under the rug and talk about how much we love each other but get after those differences so that we can decide – where we can maybe converge more than we are, and where we can't, maybe we figure out how we get out of each other's way in the best way possible. Well, Charles Adele, thank you so much for your time and for your your generous contribution here at the National Security Podcast. That was a real tour de force of Australia-US relationship. So thanks for your time, and uh, we'll no, no doubt be looking keenly at the work of the Australia Chair for many years to come. No, thanks very much, David. It's always a pleasure not only to be down here in Canberra, but at ANU. What you and what Rory have done is really a testament to just how important of an institution this place is. And I can tell you as an avid listener of the National Security Podcast, uh, it's really informative too. So uh, now we've downgraded it with my entry onto it, but thanks very much for having me on. Thank you. Thank you.